Well, all year long, we're going to be training folks for ministry. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Because the natural consequence and natural result of holiness is service to others. We've examined this by understanding, first of all, the principle of holiness has nothing to do with how good we are. It has everything to do with the character of God residing in us. And the character of God is to come down on earth in the form of a servant and help people. And therefore, we cannot separate in the great commandment, loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength from our neighbor as ourself. Those two naturally flow together and flow from one another. Now, in a little while, we're going to be talking about how God has specifically wired you for ministry. We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. We're going to be talking about aptitudes and attitudes and all of that kind of stuff. And you're going to be able to spot yourself as I talk along, and you're going to be able to spot other people you know. So that you go, oh, I know, I know how you're wired. I know. And it's going to be very interesting. However, before we ever get into that, I want to declare on this day, that your ministry is not confined to your talents nor to your wiring. It is very important to note that God did have a specific strategy in coming down here. He did have a target audience. But anyone who passed across the path of Jesus got his full attention. And therefore both singular and plural at once, there was a specific strategy, but there was a broad and wide and totally available ministry. So in order to get us to the mentality that we have the same ministry no matter who crosses our paths, let's start with a verse in Luke that contains the great commandment, but goes on further from that. This is Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 through 37. And those of you who did your curriculum this week are fully prepared for what I'm about to say. I love that curriculum. Man, it's, it's getting me ready for preaching. Let me, let me give you the setting. Verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. <laughs> now, I want you to know something, and I want you to be aware of something uh, else. I want you to know that this lawyer was probably a scribe. A scribe is someone who knows the law more and more of the law than most other people, than practically anybody else. Scribes became very valuable to the community of, of, uh, of uh, Israel, especially during the exile. When, when, the, when many of the prominent citizens of uh, Israel went into the Babylonian captivity and they were taken away from the temple where they worshipped, then the, then the most important uh, person in that community became the person who knew most of the law, who could repeat the law and even write it down. However, you know as well as I know that it's not always the person who knows the most who applies it the best. How many people do you know that can quote Scripture all over the place? They don't apply it. 
And so it's not the knowledge that's always important. And so that's why I want you to understand the attitude that this guy has. Just because he has the law in his brain doesn't mean he's got the law in his attitude. And it says, and the lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. Do you understand that many times when people ask you about your faith, they're not simply interested in the content. They are putting you on the spot. They are, they, are, they are asking you for things, hoping you don't have the answer, because if you don't have their answer, then they don't have to respond. If, you, if, you, if, you don't have, if, they can, if they can make you fail in your explanation, that gets them off the hook. And that's exactly what the attorney is doing today. It says, And he put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jews then and Jews now know that eternal life is not simply a matter of duration. It's a matter of quality. It's a matter of eternity in your heart, having that quality in your life. And so this attorney wants it explained in the form of a simple action. Many people, if you're a Christian, uh, or some people will come up and say, so what do I do to be saved? So what's, what's your opinion of what you got to do to be saved? And what they want is a very simple answer. Because, you know, as we all do, if being saved simply come, is simply an intellectual knowledge of something, boy, that's great, because I can, I can have an intellectual knowledge. Or it's even better if, if or it's even... If, maybe more uh, uh, readily accessible if I can just go through a little set of behaviors and that proves I'm saved. So if you can get a, confined down enough, but you know as well as I do also that you cannot have profound and effective results from anemic and scattered in, uh, behaviors. That Profound results require profound commitment. And so therefore, it's useless to give anybody an easy answer to Christianity. It's useless. You can, you can have all the little, the little rituals that you do, but that's not the answer. Beck and I went to a basketball game uh, uh, the other night, and uh, we walk in the gymnasium, and, and uh, Beck sees several of, us, of her former students there, and she wants to go sit with the kids. We all sit with adults, so she wants to sit with the kids. And I thought, well, that's cool. So we, we're going, and we're sitting, and the kids are all around, and she's having these conversations with these kids she taught for years and absolutely loving it. Well, the game starts, and, and, and somebody uh, fouls uh, one, of their, one of the players, uh, the kids' players, and, and so he goes to the foul line. And all the kids do this at, at the kid who's shooting a foul shot. Well, we didn't have any idea what that meant or what that, what that was supposed to do. But we were sitting with him, so I said, well, Beck, this, so Beck and I, you know, we put our hands up there. Well, the guy missed both the foul shots. And I thought to myself, well, that didn't work. So the next time a team member comes up to the foul line, you know, everybody goes like this. I'm going like this. I'm trying to see what works here, you know. He missed both the foul shots again. All night long, I was trying to pull them out my ears. I was going like that. Nothing worked. <laughs> Nothing worked. I mean, you know that. You Green, Green Bay fans, you were sitting in your lucky chair last Sunday, weren't you? You know, you're holding you're, you're doing everything trying to help out. This is a good game, but it didn't work, see? 
Well, the, the, the point is you, you can't have profound results from little rituals. There's, it, it requires more than that. And so he came up looking for an easy answer. And, and Jesus says to him, well, how do you read the law? I love this. How do you read the law? Now, one or two things happened. Either he had heard Jesus say this before, as we heard Jesus say it in Matthew 22, or he came to the exact same conclusion as Jesus did. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4, along with uh, Leviticus 19.18. And this is what he says. And he answered and said, you, will, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus looks at him. I love this. Jesus looks at him and says, well, you've answered correctly. Just go and do that. <laughs> now think about this for a minute, as I'm sure the attorney did. How do you do that? I mean, you read some of the same curriculum this week that I did. I went over to the kids' section. I love the kids' section. I mean, I read the adults. So I do the adult one. I, okay. But I, got, I went over to the kids, and, and they had a very interesting fill-in-the-blank thing. And it says, it says uh, I can love God with all my mind by. I can love God with all my heart by. And then it says, I could not answer this. How can I love God with all my soul? That is so profound. It was in the kids section. Now, if you guys came up with an answer, let me know what it is, because that is so profound. And Jesus says, well, We'll just do that. Well, now, now the lawyer, being having any ounce of integrity, is going to say, whoa, that's overwhelming. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to come to you and say, well, what, what, what little thing can I do to be saved? It's another thing for them to come and realize, no, we're talking about your entire life. So he wants to, this is, this is very, very telling. Read the next verse with me. It says, but wishing to justify himself. I can see this. No, but seriously, folks. <laughs> no, but seriously, Jesus. <laughs> wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, like, who is my neighbor? <laughs> you see what he's doing? I call this escape by technicality. If you can define something just right, you can get out of the responsibility of it. You know that? People do it all the time. People do it all the time. When they're hit with something that they don't like, they start to redefine. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's define this. Now, the very deceptive thing is it looks like you're taking more responsibility when you're really trying to take less responsibility. Love my neighbor. Oh, no, just who is my neighbor? That's, oh, who would that be? You see, there's a very interesting dynamic. If you can narrow the definition enough, you can say, that doesn't apply to me. Or if you can fog it up enough, you can say, nah, doesn't apply to me. Think about this for a minute. Sometimes we talk about tithing here. The general principle of tithing. You tithe, all of God's money should be used for his purposes, but that special 10%, you know, just give, just give it to his work. And, and, and so, so, but, but 
over the years, I've always recommended this, I've always loved doing it myself, but over the years I hear people all, well, what do you mean tithing? Well, I, well you know, I, I know you say, Tim, where do we get the 10%? Well, what, first of all, what, what would be special to God? Would, wouldn't God, uh, um, tell you what, wouldn't God love me to have a wonderful, happy family together? Yeah, well, that's sure, that would be his purpose. Well, now, how could we do that? I tell you what, I think God would love it if we just spent time together. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, I know how we could spend time. If we got a boat, <laughs> we could spend time. God would like that, wouldn't he? That's a good place for my tithe money. Or, 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 they, or, well, which, or you, have the, yeah, you have the intellectual uh, tithe definers, you know? Well, which Old Testament tithe are you talking about? You know there were 14 Old Testament tithes. I mean, there was this And so therefore, you know, you can never know which tithe you're talking about. So is it before taxes or after taxes? I can never know. You know, the, the point is that you escape by the definition. If you just dally around, if you just, if you just define it in the right terms, then it won't apply. We've been doing this since we were little. You'd walk into a room. You could see when a kid was being an ornery kid. You, you could feel it. You, you parents have innate instincts. You know when a kid's been up to something he shouldn't be. Because you walk in the room, they go, they're just acting weird. And so you look at them and say, what'd you do? What do you mean, what did I do? I mean, did you do something wrong? What, 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 what would be wrong? You know what I mean, wrong. You know, wrong is... A lot of things. Like, what specifically are you talking about? You know? We just try to get out of it. Because if you can be precise enough, you can escape by technicality. If you can redefine something enough, then you won't have to face up to the responsibilities of it. If that definition can, can, can be so correct that you're avoiding correction. I know presidents that have done this. If you can just play with the definition long enough, it doesn't apply to you. But listen to this, you know me too well to think I'm gonna stop there. Because I know Christian citizens, Christian citizens, who are so absolutely preoccupied with the details conjured up by a ravenous media that perhaps they won't have to pay attention to the image that casts their face from their wall and ask themselves the question, have you been faithful? Do you understand? If you can just play with the details long enough, if you can just have the definition on someone else, you can escape by technicality. And that's exactly what this attorney was doing that day. Who is my neighbor? Let's define neighbor. Because by this time, the Jews had done what Americans have done. They were defining neighbors only in terms of someone just like them, who had their same faith, who had their same values, 
Who is my neighbor? Maybe I'm already helping him out. So Jesus tells him a story. I love the stories of Jesus. And I love how he used stories. You can't escape from a story of Jesus. Jesus' stories aren't just intellectually captivating. They have examples. This is a, this is a, he tells a story to give an example. So Jesus says this. Well, there was a certain man <laughs> going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, now, the scribe, the lawyer, would immediately picture this. Going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This, is, this has a metaphorical sense, but it also has a geographical sense. Jericho is a little over 17 miles from Jerusalem, but it is also four thousand feet down in terms of sea level. It is a descent of 4,000 feet. That's a very steep path, and it is surrounded by mountains and hills and, and crevices, a very good place for robbers to hide. Now, Jesus said there's a certain man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him. This is a very important part of the story. Because if they stripped him, they took away every visible, categorizable characteristic. In other words, you look at the guy, you don't know if he's a Jew or a Samaritan. You look at the guy, you, don't, you can't tell whether he's rich or poor. You look at the guy, you can't tell what he believes. You can't tell where he's from. You can't tell what he does for a living. In other words, at the very beginning of this story, Jesus said, we're talking about a person who you don't characterize. Attention is for people, not categories. You understand? So Jesus says they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, <laughs> I love how Jesus uses this. He knows, he knows, listen, everything that looks like it's a chance in your life is really a test. Everything, everything that looks like a coincidence, it's really a test. And, and it says, by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, now, please note the characteristic that we also have here. And that is, we see somebody, but we don't really see them. The way that most of us keep from getting involved with people is that we don't maintain eye contact. Eye contact. Think of it for a moment. If you look at somebody and they see you looking at them, then you're engaged. And so what you got to do is you got to just got to keep looking straight ahead. You got you to kind of see them. Of course you can see them with your peripheral vision. Think of, think of going down the road and, and, and somebody's waiting to get in line of traffic. Well, if you're in a big hurry and you don't want to let them in, what do you do? You just keep staring straight ahead. You keep, you, you keep pretending you don't see them. Because if you look over and they're looking at you, you got to let them in. You feel obligated, don't you? Sure you do. So you just keep saying, and, 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 and then you can pass by on the other side if you, don't, if you don't maintain eye contact. And that's exactly what happened with the priest. He just, he saw him, but he just passed by on the other side. 
had to watch where he was going here. Very dangerous road. And likewise, a Levite. Now, a Levite was also a worker in the temple. By the way, it was very normal for uh, uh, priests and Levites to go down that road because many of them lived in, in uh, Jericho. And so um, um, it was after you got done with your duty in the temple in Jerusalem, you'd go down uh, to Jericho. And, and, uh, and so it says, and likewise, a Levite also, Levites, uh, many of them were singers. Uh, many of them were teachers of the law, but they all had work at the temple. That was their religious activity. And it says, Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, again, here's something very important not to miss. These two had decided to confine their activities for God to an institutional structure that within a generation would be completely destroyed. Let me say that to you again. These two saw religious work in terms of the temple. And apparently that's all they were interested in, just serving at the temple. That was their definition of having activity for God. But it is historic fact that in 70 A.D., that temple was completely destroyed. And so the actual historical fact is these two had decided to focus their religious activity on an institutional structure that was doomed. Now, church, let me tell you something analogous. I believe that the church will always remain strong, but the institutional structure of the church in this country is not going to last very much longer. And let me tell you why. There will always be local churches, but the local churches are going to change very much in size. There are going to be more and more churches that are 35, 40 strong. There will also be churches that are 40, 50,000. But those churches that are the most numerous right now, those churches that are 100 in attendance, are absolutely going to go out of business, one right after another. And I know this from a couple of aspects. First of all, as a seminary teacher, I can tell you, and I think I've told you before, out of 50 guys in my class that are graduating with MDivs this year, four of them were being trained to be a pastor in a small or medium-sized local church. Why? Because they know there's not jobs out there. That size church can't support a pastor anymore. Why can't they? Because the old definition of a neighborhood where everybody went to the same church year after year and were loyal to that church no matter what, with the mobility of our society, that church is dying. And it's, it's not out of any, any, any uh, horrible sin. It's not out of any horrible... It's just the change in the structure of the society. And as the structure of the society changes, then the structure of the church will change. So people who see all of their God activity in terms of loyalty to a local church are really serving an institutional structure that won't be there forever. Therefore... Jesus would say to us, don't 
think in terms of just the institutional structure. Of course, there's things that need to be done around the church. But when you think of serving God, you need to think of serving God wherever he comes on your path in the disguise of need. That's your real service. And that's what he says when he describes the Samaritan, who incidentally this lawyer would have hated because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They were below them. And, of course, Jesus makes him the hero of the story. It says, but a certain Samaritan. I can just, I can just see that lawyer go, ooh, man, a Samaritan. Yeah, a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. You remember how many times in Scripture it says that Jesus had compassion on them. When he looked at the people, he said, it was like, like sheep scattered without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. These are the characteristics of Jesus. And he had compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Now, let me tell you uh, uh, several things that I think are very interesting here and we should note. Number one, God had pre-given this Samaritan the resources he would need to take care of that wounded man. He had them in his possession. He had bandages. He had oil. He had wine. He had a donkey. And he had a little money for the inn. And therefore, he could give it. God has already given you or will give you in the process whatever you need to give to someone else in need. Here's a very important principle. If you got it, give it. If you don't got it, don't give it and don't feel guilty about it. It's very simple. If you got it, give it. Then God has resourced you to give it to somebody else. If you don't got it, don't give it and don't feel guilty about it. Somebody else will do it. Very simple. Now, there'll be some times when you feel led to say, Oh, I've got to give my less. But you know what? God's going to come around and say, Whatever you, whatever you spend, I'll pay you back. I, I'll, get, I'll get it back to you. He, that's just how he now, number two, many people don't give. This was in your curriculum also. Because they feel like if they give anything, they're going to give everything. I'm going to be committed to this person for the rest of my life. Why? Why do you think that? No, that's not. he doesn't need a God. He doesn't need a mother. He doesn't need a father. He doesn't need a counselor. He just needs somebody. Look, look at how appropriate the treatment was. He needed bandages. The Samaritan bandaged him. He needed stuff. For, you know, when you pour wine on somebody's wounds, that's an antiseptic. That's the, the, the alcohol in that wine... Uh, uh, guards against infection. You remember when you were little, some of you are a little, uh, are old enough to remember when you used to get a cut, you'd go in and you knew the methylate was there. And you go, oh, I mean, it was, a, it was really a close contest as to whether to get methylate or just have them shoot you in the head. You know, just, <laughs> this hurts so bad, just shoot me. But it hurt. And, but it, but the, it was the alcohol and it was the sting that you knew was helping. By the way, when the word of God stings you, that means it's getting deep enough to do some good. That's the antiseptic. 
It's cleaning out. It's killing the germs. It's doing some good. And so here he was, pouring the wine, antiseptic, giving oil. Oil is like a, 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 a bomb, a salve. And so after he pours in the antiseptic, he salves it over, kind of like aloe or whatever you would put there, a salve, so that it doesn't get reinfected. And then put him on the beast, took him to the inn. By the way, the definition of an inn ought to be the definition of a church. Because in Greek, inn means anybody can go. Anybody can go. Doesn't matter what shape you're in. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what you're there. Anybody can go. So he took him to this place where everybody was welcome. And he transferred responsibility for him. That's a pretty important concept, isn't it? He wasn't everything to this. He didn't sit down with him and say, this must hurt your feelings. This, this had to, to tell me about your... No. Somebody at the end could do that. But he didn't have to get into all that. He gave him two denarii, which would take care of the man for several days, and said, look, take care. Whatever necessary, I'll come back and repay you. He took, he took responsibility for that incident. That's all God's asking you for. It's all he's asking you for. And then, think of what he learned in that whole process. You know, every time we minister to somebody, we learn better how to minister to somebody else. There is no better teacher for ministry than experience. Every, every time I get a, a person in class and they think, I'm going to teach them how to be a local church pastor. Mm-mm. Only a congregation can teach a person how to be a pastor. That's, all, that's, that's, that's true. And only, only experience in ministry can ever train a person the how. You can come out with the theories. You can know what to watch for. You can be taught that. But you can't be trained to be a pastor outside of a local congregation. And you can't be trained to be a Samaritan outside of the experience of helping somebody. So that's how God trains us for ministry. He gets us involved. In limited fashions, gets us involved. And he gets us involved because he gives us a character of compassion. Now, we don't have that character normally. Because you know our human character as well as I do. We don't want to get involved in the first place. And it's only as God gives us the heart of Jesus. It's only as God gives us his character because we have, we have worshipped him, because we have read his word. It is in our heart. And the, and the character of Jesus becomes more and more evident in our lives. Then we will have compassion. And then, I want you to see this. I'll close with this. It says, verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved, it's a very important word, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy... Jesus said, go and do the same. I want you to see two things here. First of all, I want you to see the definition of the term neighbor. Neighbor in, in Greek is plesion. And it means whoever's near. Whoever's near. Nearby one. That's, that's, literally, the, that, that's literally the term. Um, 
we get the English word neighbor from the old English is nigh bore. It's the bore who is nigh. <laughs> it's literally the bore who's near. The nearest bore is your neighbor. It's true. That's where we get the, that's where we get the term. Now, I want you to see what isn't in this term. What isn't in the term is the one who lives by you. What isn't in the term is the one who is like you. What isn't in the term is the one who is in your clique. What isn't in the term is the one who thinks like you and acts like you and lives like you. That isn't in the term. I hear people really bewailing the loss of neighborhoods. And I, I see that there is a certain disadvantage to the direction of the, of the culture. But I want to tell you that biblically, we're not losing much. Because biblically, our neighbor were always those people that got put in front of us, no matter where we were. And so therefore, we haven't lost a thing. But here's what else I want you to see. Jesus doesn't answer in terms of a definition. He answers in terms of a responsibility. Do you see the switch in the question? All the guy was asking was, so who is my neighbor? But Jesus' reply is, so who proves to be the neighbor? Do you get that? Very important. Jesus is saying this. I'm not going to give you a definition you can play with. I'm going to give you a responsibility that you either do or you don't. Who proved to be the neighbor? How can we be a neighbor? Only as far and as consistently as we have the character of Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, help us to not be the one who wants to redefine who you are in terms of us, as Vernon said. Help us to not be the one who wants to narrow the definition of our responsibility so precisely that we can escape the larger moral question. Help us to be the one who recognizes in the person in need the face of Jesus, the face of the one who Jesus loves, the face of the one who contains the heart of the Christ. And let us respond to him or her in terms of compassion so that we can prove to be the one not only nearby him, but nearby you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.